Now, good morning and a live bunch this morning. How are you all doing? Good. The sun is out. It feels like spring, doesn't it? It's about time, right? This past week, the first week in like two months, no snow, right? Yeah. Means we'll get doubled this week, right? I hope not. Please turn in your Bibles to Acts chapter 5, verse 17. Yes, we are returning to our study of Acts this morning. And all God's people said, Amen. Our window into the book of Acts has been to describe Christian life and witness as Christians bringing the kingdom of God in Jesus' name to a world desperate for it. And we've been asking for the last few months now, what does that look like? What does it mean to bring the kingdom of God into the world? What's the witness of the kingdom that we bring? And also, what do we do to bring it? How do we bring it? What's required or necessary for us to bring the kingdom of God effectively? And you see a, a summary of these characteristics that we've covered so far up on the screen. The next characteristic I'd like to unpack together with you is a big one. And it's pain, persecution, and conflict. Three very heavy words, aren't they? Jesus said, if they persecute me, they will persecute you. Paul tells his disciple, Timothy, everyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ will be persecuted. We will encounter pain, persecution, and conflict, my brothers and sisters, when we try and bring the kingdom of God into the world. And with all due respect to our health and wealth, brothers and sisters, I'm sorry, but they need to read their Bible, all of it. We really began talking about pain, persecution, and conflict back in Acts 4. Remember when Peter and John were arrested and told by the Sanhedrin to stop teaching in Jesus' name? And this topic really continued in the story of Ananias and Sapphira in Acts 5. This time, conflict within that church community. And so we've seen so far two needed responses, I guess you could say, to pain, persecution, and conflict. Bold humility, as with Peter and John. And then transparency, something that Ananias and Sapphira sorely lacked. So for the, the next several weeks, I'd like to dig deeper into this topic of pain, persecution, and conflict. Sort of a series within our series of the book of Acts. This morning, I've asked you to turn to Acts 5.17. We have another encounter here between the Sanhedrin and the disciples. Next week, I've asked Dave Beatty, sort of our, our resident deacon expert, to weigh in on another internal conflict in the church, one that led to the selection of what many believe, at least, were the first disciples in the early church. Then I'll pick up the ball again on February 25 and beyond to consider with you the story of Stephen. Remember him? the first, very first Christian martyr in Acts 6 and 7. As a free bonus to that story, 
we'll finally get our very first glimpse of a fascinating man named Saul. Or as we know him better, perhaps the Apostle Paul. So that's our game plan for the next month or so. Please make your game plan to be with us. It's just not the same without you. (laughs) And you never know. God may have something that you may need to hear and consider. Okay, enough housekeeping. Let's get after the Bible this morning, shall we? Our passage this morning is a long one. What I'd like to do is to read through the story together with you and do my best to provide a sort of color commentary along the way based on context and background. And in that way, try to reenact together a bit of what's going on here in Acts chapter 5. So, your Bibles are open to Acts chapter 5, 17. Let's go and see what God has for us in His Word. Beginning at verse 17. Then the high priest and all his associates, who were members of the party of the Sadducees, were filled with jealousy. What are they jealous of? Well, the previous verse we read how crowds gathered around the disciples and gathered from towns all through Israel and Jerusalem, bringing their sick and people tormented by evil spirits. And we read that all of them were healed by the disciples. And they didn't sit well with the Sadducees. The Sadducees were the ones used to sitting on top of the pyramid of power. They were the ones that ran the temple. All this attention going to this ragtag group of Galileans, they didn't like it and they're extremely jealous. Interestingly enough, two more background pieces on Sadducees that will help inform our text this morning. Sadducees didn't believe in angels. Did you know that? Their theology didn't believe that angels existed. And also, Sadducees did not believe that the dead would be resurrected one day. No resurrection of the dead theology in Sadducean thinking. So, these jealous, non-angel, non-resurrection Sadducees, what did they do? Verse 18, they arrested the apostles and put them in the public jail. But during the night, an angel, an angel of the Lord, opened the doors of the jail and brought them out. Now, immediately... A first century reader who heard this story for the first time and was familiar with Sadducee, they'd crack up that an angel... So go ahead, you can crack up. (laughs) That's pretty good. Okay, we need to pipe in a laugh track, John. Bless you. Or maybe they would sneeze. I don't... This is funny stuff. An angel shows... Sadducees didn't believe in angels. Oh... To have been there that day in the courtroom, the throne room of God, okay, when He gave the command to that angel to go and free the disciples. Can you imagine this with me? Michael, those Sadducees have gone and thrown the disciples in jail. As you recall, Michael, the Sadducees don't even believe you exist. So why don't you go down and free them? Now, I'm sure if angels can grin, Michael's grin that day must have nearly split his face in two. What's that, Michael? 
No, you may not toilet paper, toilet paper the Sadducees' houses. <laughs> Just go and free the disciples. Trust me. It will be worth it. And yes, you can hang around till the next morning and see the looks on their faces. And I'll bet, I'll bet that angel broke the all-time angelic speed record down from heaven to Jerusalem. <laughs> Don't let anyone ever tell you that God doesn't have an amazing sense of irony and humor. Sometimes I'm convinced that he's Dutch. (laughs) He uses both irony and humor a lot to reveal truth. I mean, think about it. God could have used an earthquake, right? To shake those jail doors open. He does that later when Paul needs to be freed. Remember? He could have snapped his fingers. But instead, we coincidentally have the very first of several mentions of angels being God's messengers of power in Acts to go and free the disciples from the custody of those who don't believe in angels. It's funny stuff. Verse 20, angel comes down to bring them out and he says to them, Go stand in the temple courts, he said, and tell the people the full message of this new life. In other words, okay, guys, go down and do again what got you thrown into jail in the first place. And maybe implicitly, as he's standing there, and guys, take heart, be encouraged, I've got the jailhouse keys jingling in my heavenly pocket. So go. Verse 21, At daybreak, they, the disciples, entered the temple courts as they had been told, and began to teach the people. And now, as they say, the plot thickens in God's joke of sorts on the Sadducees and all those who feel they're in power. God's joke is sprung. Look at uh, middle of verse 21. When the high priest and his associates arrived... They called together the Sanhedrin, the full assembly of the elders of Israel, and sent to the jail for the apostles. But on arriving at the jail, the officers did not find them there. So they went back and reported, We found the jail securely locked, with the guards standing at the doors, but when we opened them, we found no one inside. Okay, you've got to picture this. Put your Hollywood production... You know, hats on. Can you imagine it? Everybody's there. The Sanhedrin council chamber is packed. All the important, powerful, muckety-muck, Sadducees, Pharisees sitting there. Caiaphas makes a grand entrance, probably wearing his best robe, getting ready to tear it and cry blasphemy perhaps, but all decked out, and he's ready to put on another arrogant political show of pompous circumstance in front of everyone. And then in comes these officers back from the jail, the ones that were to fetch Peter and company. Can you picture it? Maybe the officer made his way near to Caiaphas and said something like, They're not there. (laughs) You know, and there sits Caiaphas. (laughs) What do you mean they're not there? Everybody is here. And the officer, they're not there. 
Now, I'm not sure if Caiaphas ever cussed, but if he ever did, he probably did right then, I'm thinking. Verse 23, we found the jail securely locked, the guards standing at the doors. When we opened them, we found no one inside. On hearing this report, the captain of the temple guard and the chief priests were puzzled, wondering what would come of this. There sits Caiaphas, right? Now what? You know, we get rid of this Jesus. We get to feel good for, you know, three lousy days. And from then on, this thing has gone absolutely beyond crazy. All this talk of Jesus rising from the dead, His disciples go from hiding out to boldly doing exactly what Jesus was doing. Thousands and thousands of followers... And now the jail is empty. Now what? He must be thinking. Verse 25. Then someone came and said, Look! The men you put in jail are standing in the temple courts teaching the people. Yeah, some of you laugh. This is funny. Most scholars, most scholars take and put that Sanhedrin council chamber either in the temple courts themselves or very near the temple mount, where if you looked out the window, you can see what's going on. These Sadducees would have put their council in some prime spot. So I picture, I don't know, some guy in the back of the hall room or just outside the door kind of leaning against the wall, wondering when the proceedings are going to begin. And then we get one of those famous double takes, right? He's sitting there, oh, you know, what's going on now? Why can't Caiaphas keep his act together? And he kind of looks out the window and he... There sit Peter and John, right? Teaching away. (laughs) Look! There they are, right there teaching, he says. Verse 26. At that, the captain went with his officers and brought the apostles. They did not use force because they feared that the people would stone them. Just look at how the supposed mighty and powerful and in control have been utterly and thoroughly humbled here. My, how the tables have turned. Those who thought they were in control of the situation are now reduced to having to fear for their own lives and wondering, now what? They have to go and request politely that the disciples come back with them to the council. God is so powerful. He is so in control. He toys with the most mighty and powerful of this world, one angel with a jailhouse key, and this thing is, wham, clearly revealed to all who hear the story as being about God's will and not man's will. Can you picture the captain and the officers as they get near, push their way kind of through the crowds to where the disciples are teaching? Um... Excuse me, Mr. Simon, Mr. Simon Peter, um, would you please come with us? Pretty please? I often wonder if Peter had said, no. (laughs) Would they have forced him to come? Probably not. Then the captain would have to go back again empty-handed. But the captain breathes a sigh of relief when Peter says, all right, we'll go. And he goes back. They return with the captain. 
but not on man's terms. They return only on God's terms. And the text screams that fact to us this morning. Yes, there will be a proceeding between the Sanhedrin and the disciples, but only because God says so, and not because any earthly power says so. I wonder if that's what Luke has in mind here in telling the story this way, to show that God is in this pain, persecution, and conflict through and through. Now, I have no doubt that many of you have recently or maybe even are in periods of pain, persecution, and conflict. Let this angel with the jailhouse key encourage you. You may think that who's ever causing your pain, persecution, and conflict, or you may think that the pain itself has control. Uh Uh-uh. Nothing is done outside of God's control. He is there in that pain. He is in control. And take some comfort from that. And so back they go. I wonder if the disciples are grinning just a bit. I don't know. Perhaps they're also a bit fearful. The Sanhedrin was certainly a dangerous place for them to be. But they have to go with some confidence, don't they? Some of that bold humility that carried them through the first encounter with the Sanhedrin. For they know an angel of the Lord is on the loose, looking out for them. I think chances are that bold humility, rather than fear, carried them back to the council that morning. Verse 27, having brought the apostles, they made them appear before the Sanhedrin to be questioned by the high priest. Now, without looking at the screen, what do you suppose the high priest is going to ask? What's the pregnant, obvious elephant in the room question that is just begging to be asked? Isn't it something like, how on earth did you guys get out of our jail? But Caiaphas doesn't go there. I think he's afraid of the answer. He's just been thinking, now what? So he just ignores the whole jailbreak. And you just see him clearing his throat, trying to salvage what little is left of his pride, his planned showcase of large and in-charge power that morning, and so red-faced perhaps, He just plunges into the opening remark that he's been working on all night, right? Verse 28. We gave you strict orders not to teach in this name, he said. Yet you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching and are determined to make us guilty of this man's blood. Can't even get himself to say Jesus' name, can he? And here's the charge. You hear the charge in Caiaphas' opening statement. Teaching in Jesus' name, and you're trying to make us guilty of this man's blood. Verse 29, Peter and the other apostles replied, We must obey God rather than men. And here you see that theme that I just mentioned. Peter really repeats out of his mouth what Luke as the writer and we as the readers have already recognized in the story. God is the one in control here, Caiaphas, not you. And then our friend Peter just goes for it. We might think 
that Peter would use a little care here, a little tact, a little seeker-sensitive wooing. We might think that Peter would soften his words a bit in an attempt, you know, to cool down the situation. Not Peter. What follows is as blunt and offensive to Sadducean ears as it could possibly get. Peter responds to the charges of teaching and blaming the Sanhedrin for Jesus' death by teaching and blaming the Sanhedrin for, for Jesus' death. It's like he says, guilty as charged, and let me do it again, by the way. He lets it all hang out. Look at verse 30. The God of our fathers raised Jesus from the dead. Oh, and the Sadduceans wince at the idea of resurrection, remember? And while their theology is reeling, Peter makes it even more personal. The God of our fathers raised Jesus from the dead, whom you had killed by hanging him on a tree. God exalted him to his own right hand as prince and savior, that he might give repentance and forgiveness of sins to Israel. We are witnesses of these things, and so is the Holy Spirit, whom God has given to those who obey Him. In other words, the Holy Spirit that God has given to those who are baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. In other words, Caiaphas and Sanhedrin, not you. (laughs) Ouch! And the reaction of the Sanhedrin to these harsh words from Peter is expected and understandable, isn't it? Look at verse 33. When they heard this, they were furious and wanted to put them to death. But a Pharisee named Gamaliel, it's the Greek pronunciation in Hebrew, you'd say Gamliel. It means God is my reward. And so literally, a Pharisee named God is my reward a teacher of the law who was honored by all the people, stood up in the Sanhedrin and ordered that the men, the disciples, be put outside for a little while. Now, we've got Pharisees mentioned as a group here for the first time in our story. Now, Pharisees are a distinct group in Israel. We tend to lump Pharisee and Sadducee together sometime, and we really shouldn't. Because they were very different. Some differences include theology. Pharisees believed in angels. They also believed in the resurrection of the dead. And they believed that all of Scripture should be applied to everyday living. They believed that the life of a believer in God ought to be characterized by a pursuit of righteousness. And they had a very high view of the sovereignty of God, His providence and complete control. While at the same time, Pharisees believed in free will. That somehow, some way, God in His sovereignty permits and allows real choices of real people to have real effect. Now those things, and many like them, should be very familiar to us Christians, right? We too affirm the existence of angels, the application of all Scripture to our lives, the, the necessary response to grace of, of trying as best we can with the help of the Holy Spirit to live obedient lives. And, and we affirm God's sovereignty and the fact that all people are free to choose 
for or against God. Amen? Now, to be sure, the Gospels clearly tell us that many Pharisees rejected Jesus' teachings. In particular, many of them had a horrible time with Jesus' command to associate in love with sinners. They just couldn't go there. Many also disagreed with him over what you could and couldn't do on the Sabbath. Remember some of those stories? And still others couldn't accept his teaching on marriage and divorce or his teaching on the necessity or effect of becoming ritually pure or clean. But for us to take those examples of Pharisees who opposed Jesus, and some of his teachings at least, and to turn it into some sort of stereotype that all Pharisees were all evil all the time in everything they did, at worst, that can easily become an ugly racial or cultural prejudice. At best, at best, it is simply historically and biblically inaccurate. It would be like someone 2,000 years from now describing Christianity in the 20th century by saying something like, oh yeah, 20th century Christians supported bombing abortion clinics. Some did. Most didn't. Or 20th century Christians believed that women should or should not serve as pastors in the church. Or, how about this one? All Democrats are hedonistic pagans. <laughs> and to be fair, or all Republicans are selfish, money-grubbing capitalists. <laughs> we need to be careful, don't we, with stereotypes? Now, of the 71 members of the Sanhedrin in Jesus' day, Guess how many of the 71 were Pharisees? Everybody hold up one hand. Five. Five out of the 71 are Pharisees. The rest are Sadducees. We know in our Bible the names of three of those five muckety-muck Pharisees that were on the Sanhedrin in Jesus' day. Can you name any of them? Yeah, good. Peek ahead a little bit. Gamliel, or remember, Gamliel's one. Do you know the other two? Nicodemus. Excellent. And who's the third? I think I heard it. Do you remember Joseph of Arimathea? Joseph of Arimathea. Interesting. Remember Nicodemus? Nicodemus shows up and talks to Jesus in John 3. Remember what he says to Jesus? Remember what his opening remark is? This Sanhedrin member Pharisee comes up to Jesus and says to him, we know you are a teacher who has come from God. Later, Nicodemus sticks up for Jesus when others want to arrest him for claiming to be living water in John 7. And later still, Nicodemus goes along with his buddy Joseph of Arimathea to take Jesus' body down from the cross and put it in Joseph's donated family tomb. The Bible even tells us that Joseph of Arimathea, it calls Joseph of Arimathea a disciple of Jesus. One of the top five Pharisees. 
in Jesus' day, serving on the Sanhedrin, a disciple of Jesus according to the biblical text. Think of that. And Luke tells us that Joseph didn't consent to the decision of the Sanhedrin in finding Jesus guilty and in having Him crucified. Nicodemus and Joseph, two of the top five Pharisees in Jesus' day, and there they are, supporting Jesus in various ways. We need to be careful here in stereotyping all Pharisees as all evil all the time. The Bible clearly says they were not all against Jesus and gives specifics by name. With that background, let's go back to Gamaliel and maybe a greater appreciation and understanding for what he's about to do is there. I wonder how Gamaliel feels about Jesus and about his disciples now that Jesus is gone. Well, we're about to find out with the disciples of Jesus' lives on the line. What will Gamaliel do? Verse 35. Then he, Gamaliel, addressed them. Men of Israel, consider carefully what you intend to do to these men. Some time ago, Thutis appeared claiming to be somebody, and about 400 men rallied to him. He was killed. All of his followers were dispersed. After him, another guy, Judas the Galilean, appeared in the days of the census and led a band of people in revolt. He too was killed, and all of his followers scattered. My point is this. Therefore, in the present case, I advise you, leave these men alone. Let them go. For if their purpose or activity is of human origin, it will fail. But if it is from God, you will not be able to stop these men. You'll only find yourself fighting against God. Wow. Leave them alone. Let them go. Now, I don't believe Gamaliel was a believer like Joseph of Arimathea or perhaps Nicodemus. But at least Gamaliel's sympathetic. And at least the man has the integrity and the guts to admit that these guys just might have the backing of God. In fact, I think Gamaliel believes it's a real possibility. If he didn't, why voice his concern this way? Guys, please, let's wait and see a little more. We don't want to end up fighting against God. And look at the effect of his words. Verse 40, His speech persuaded them. They called the apostles in and had them flogged. Then they ordered them not to speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. The apostles left the Sanhedrin rejoicing. The apostles left the Sanhedrin rejoicing because they had been counted worthy of suffering disgrace for the name. And day after day, in the temple courts and from house to house, they never stopped teaching and proclaiming the good news that Jesus is the Christ. Pain, persecution, and conflict, this topic is a challenge for Christians. It's a challenge for us, isn't it? Who proclaim an all-powerful God of love. That very proclamation in turn begs the question, doesn't it? Something like, if God is indeed all-powerful, and if God indeed loves us, then why does He allow such pain, persecution, and conflict in our lives? 
We're going to spend some time, and it's going to take time in the coming weeks to unpack this difficult question in particular. Why the pain? Part of the answer, at least, we see in this text before us, part of the answer, I think, is because God has some greater good in mind, and this greater good makes the pain in a fallen world necessary for us to endure sometimes. What are the examples of greater good resulting from the pain in this story before us? First, within times of pain, persecution, and conflict, God places the opportunity of joy and invites us to rejoice when we find it. You see, but for pain... Joy loses some of its contrast. Joy loses some of its power. The disciples are publicly disgraced by getting thrown into jail. If that doesn't happen, God never sends an angel to rescue and encourage them. The Sanhedrin wants to kill them. But for that desire, there's no opportunity for perhaps an unlikely supporter in Gamaliel convincing the Sanhedrin to let them go. The disciples are flogged. And they rejoice that they are counted worthy of suffering disgrace in the same way that Jesus did. But for the flogging, they don't share as intimately, do they, with Jesus' pain. John Calvin puts it this way. It must not be thought that the apostles were so stolid as not to feel ashamed. And even to suffer from a sense that they had been wronged for They had not discarded nature completely. But when they thought over the cause, joy got the upper hand. Hardly one in a hundred understands that the ignominy, the disgrace or shame of Christ, suffering shame for Jesus' name, hardly one in a hundred understands that that is far superior to all the triumphs of the world. Another commentator puts it this way, those disciples, they rejoiced because the earthly dishonor was to them actually a high honor. There is so much that depends on our perspective. So much depends on how we choose to see things. When we experience pain, Do we only cry, that's not fair. I don't deserve this. Do we only see the arrest, the jail, the shame, and the whip? Or do we see angels with keys? Do we see others who support us and comfort us? And do we feel, allow ourselves to feel closer to what it might have been like for Jesus? You see, whatever pain God has in your life, He has hidden in it and through it the opportunity for joy. There is always a silver lining in the cloud. There is always God's honey in the rock. Look for it. Choose to see it. Look for it in the painful circumstance. It's there. And when you find it, Allow joy to get the upper hand. 
Think of the last time you experienced pain. Some of you don't have to think too far back because you're in significant pain right now. As you reflect on that pain, is there any cause for joy? Did you find friends you never knew you had? Did your relationship, is your relationship with your husband or wife being challenged to deepen? Or how about this one? Did your pain propel you to seek after God all the more and perhaps cause you to experiencing Him in a whole new way that you never dreamt about? Were you given opportunities to comfort others while experiencing similar pain? These things are among the greater goods, I think, that God has in mind when He allows pain in our lives. We just don't often see it that way. Second, and I'll close with this, when pressed by pain, persecution, and conflict, when joy, when we find it in the pain, and when joy gets the other hand, and we rejoice rather than despair, you know what happens every time in the Bible? And certainly in the story before us, our passion and our intensity for proclaiming Jesus grows. This, too, is a greater good. God doesn't risk us growing complacent. (laughs) Our time here is too short, my friends, to make life a vacation. Extended vacation, eternity, comes later. The disciples' painful experience did not at all dampen their enthusiasm. Oh, to the contrary, it propelled them to continue with an even greater intensity. Sort of the effect of when the going gets tough, the tough get going. Day after day, we read, they never stop teaching, never stop proclaiming the good news that Jesus is the Christ. That experience of pain in your life, if you are able to find joy in the pain, Did your pain give you the opportunity at least to strengthen your resolve in some ways to continue even more in the pursuit of God? Pain presents for us the opportunity to find and to choose joy. And it presents the opportunity to increase our intensity of teaching and preaching and leaning on Jesus. When pain hits, look for reasons to rejoice. Look for God. And take the opportunity pain offers to increase your reliance on Him and to increase your intensity of proclaiming the good news that is only found in Jesus Christ. We're certainly not done with this topic of pain, persecution, and conflict. We've barely even scratched the surface. But we'll pause here for now until next week. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we see how your disciples long ago reacted in times of persecution, pain, and conflict. And Father, we so much would like your power and your grace to enable us to react with bold humility. To enable us, Father, to even rejoice 
to enable us, Father, to tell our stories in transparent and vulnerable ways. And, oh, Father, may all of it just serve to increase our burning desire that your Holy Spirit puts inside us to share, to share the salvation that is in Jesus' name alone. Oh, Father, would you give us your Spirit and enable us to do that because we cannot do it ourselves. We love you. Father, I would ask your blessing right now to descend on these brothers and sisters of mine. And that, Father, that wherever they go this week, that you would give them eyes to see, ears to hear, hearts to feel, and hands and feet to act out your presence in their lives. Would you make that a conscious realization for them this week, Father? Allow them to see you and feel you and hear you and to touch you no matter where they go, no matter perhaps into what pain. We love you, Father. And we pray all of this in the only name that has power, the name of Jesus Christ, our Savior and Messiah. Amen.